morning, everybody. Thanks for being here this morning. Um, hope everybody had a good Thanksgiving. Um, got to spend some time with the family and friends. Tara and I were in town and spent some time with her family. It was a lot of fun. Went and saw Frozen 2. So has anybody seen it yet? No, a couple people have seen it. Lena has seen it three times now in the theater. We saw it last weekend with, her, with our family, just you know the four of us. And then she saw it with a babysitter on Tuesday and then saw it again with this, this weekend with our family. They were like, let's go see Frozen 2. And we were like, okay, we'll go see it. So um, if you hear me singing the soundtrack or humming the soundtrack, just, just disregard me because it's infected my brain now. And uh, it's kind of uh, all we listen to in our household now. But uh, hope everybody had a good Thanksgiving. And to this week we're going to be continuing to go through... Um, our 20 questions based on um, the Wayne Grudem book, 20 Basics Every Christian Should Know About Christian Beliefs. And we're going to be talking about what is election this week. So, woohoo! Fun topic, very controversial. Um, so, I want to make a few disclaimers before we get started. And, you know, this can be a, a controversial subject, and people have debated back and forth of what biblical election actually is. Um, for centuries, really, and um, I realize that not everybody here will have the same interpretation as me on some of these issues, but I hope that everyone through, uh, through this study will, um, you know, I hope we'll be able to all take something from this and remember at the end of the day that the most important thing is to our unity in Christ, that uh, Jesus is our Lord, and if we keep that, thing, that central point as um, our focus at the end of the day, then um, I think that will be good. So let's jump right in and first talk about you know, a little bit of background about what election is. So this topic of election is one that's been uh, debated really since the fourth century. Um, it's also known as predestination. Some people refer to it as predestination. And so um, let's first define what it means. And really the definition of biblical election is going to depend on who you ask. So there are two key theologians that um, I think Kyle mentioned in the Facebook post uh, that kind of have popularized this, this idea of election on the, in the two different ways you can look at it. John Calvin and Jacob Arminius. So these two old theologians that were in about the 17th century, 1600s, that popularized these two diverging views of biblical election, but it actually goes back to even the fourth century. There were some uh, theologists that talked about this. So if you ask John Calvin, who was you know, the founder of the Calvinist movement, he would define biblical election as unconditional election, also known as unconditional grace. And in his book, he says, election is a reformed doctrine relating to predestination that describes the actions and motives of God in eternity past before he created the world where he predestined some of us to receive salvation. And these would be the elect. And the rest he left to continue in their sins and receive the just punishment or eternal damnation for their transgressions of God's law as outlined in the Old and New Testaments of the Bible. God made these choices according to his own purposes apart from any conditions or qualities related to those persons. So that's 
John Calvin's view of election. He viewed it as an unconditional election. So before the beginning of time, God has uh, made a list in his mind, essentially. Uh, this is the way I think about it. He's made a list with names on it of the people that will be saved at the end of time. And there's nothing that those people can do to change that they're on that list. He's chosen you. There's nothing you can do to get off the list. There's nothing you can do to get on the list because God has decided you're on the list. And so it's unconditional, the circumstances that you are saved. Contrasting with that point of view is the view of Jacob Arminius. And Jacob Arminius says, conditional election is the belief that God chooses for eternal salvation those whom he foresees will have faith in Christ. This belief emphasizes the importance of a person's free will. So the way I like to think about his point of view is there's not necessarily a list of specific names, but there's a list with a group on there. Meaning if you are in the body of Christ at the end of time, then you will be saved. So God, before the creation of the world, has predestined this group of people saying the body of Christ to be saved at the end of time. And through this viewpoint, people still have the choice that they can choose to accept Christ or deny him. And so that's the conditional view of salvation. And in our book, uh, the author Wayne Grudem, he defines election as an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. So, you know, we debate this within the church, but there's also this idea of people outside of the church who read the Bible. And I can even remember conversations with uh, friends of mine uh, when I was, you know, throughout college and high school that you see this, this term election in the Bible and it, it, it's confusing to you because, you know, we think about elections, we think about, uh, you know, voting for someone and, and uh, maybe someone getting into office. But this is a different kind of idea of election and it's one that I think, you know, we as Christians need to understand and get a grasp of so that we can give account to this to people that may be reading the Bible for the first time and not understand what it means in the context. So, if you're still with me, after some boring definitions, let's break down of why this is important. What are the implications of this topic of election? Well, there are a few questions that this raises. Number one, if we are or are not elected as part of God's uh, saved group and therefore predestined for salvation, then what's the point of trying to live a moral life? So, depending on how you feel about this idea of election, it it may determine, you know, what's the point of trying to follow Christ? If God has already chosen who he's going to save, then why am I struggling to do the right thing? Why am I trying to make the right decisions? Why am I coming to church? These are some questions that are raised depending on how you view this verse. Another question that's raised is, if only certain individuals are predestined for salvation, then what's the point of evangelism? So you can see why that's important, because if there are certain individuals that have been predestined since the beginning of time, since the beginning of creation. You know, what's the point of us pouring all, giving all this money on, you know, giving Sunday or sending missionaries to foreign fields? What incentive do I have to be an evangelist to the people around me in work? 
um, if you know whether if they're going to be saved whether I talk to them about Jesus or not so that's another question that this point brings up another question is if God has decided our individual fate before the creation of the world then is there even free will so if you think about it if God has preordained or predestined certain individuals that he's going to save then you kind of makes you wonder are there other decisions in our lives that God has dictated already has he already you know chosen or has he already determined who I'm going to marry or what decisions I'm going to make about my career uh, or do I have any control over that is do I have free will at all or am I kind of just like a, a for all purposes a robot that has been given a programming and I'm just following the algorithm so that's another question that's, that comes up when we talk about this biblical view of election. And we're only going to really scratch the surface of these things this morning. Um, so, you know, this is a bigger conversation that can be had in a longer period of time, but hopefully we'll address some of those questions this morning. And, and I encourage you to read more about this and formulate your own opinion of, you know, where you fall on this spectrum. And I'll give you what, you know, what my personal um, views are about this. But, um, you know, I, it's, I encourage you to read the verses yourself and, and kind of draw your own conclusions as well. Because this is not something that, this is not a, 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 an opinion that I'm formulating. This is, a, um, this is our interpretation of what we see in the Bible. So let's talk about what God actually says about election in the Bible. So there's a few key points that we'll discuss this morning. The key point number one that I think we can all agree on is throughout Scripture God states who he will save so this is something that's that's stated very clearly in the Bible if you look in Acts 13 48 Paul and Barnabas are teaching in Antioch and Acts 13 verse 48 says and when the Gentiles heard this they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed so we see in this, this verbiage of where there's a certain group that was appointed in eternal life. Appointed means they were elected or they were chosen. And we can see that God chooses a certain group and will give them eternal life. And along those same lines, Paul writes in Ephesians 1, verse 3 through 5. And this is a very influential verse uh, a set of verses right here. And I encourage you to turn your Bibles if you have this because this is where... Uh, a lot of the views diverge about the biblical view of election from this set of passages. In, first, in Ephesians 1, 3 through 5, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ, Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And so in verse 4, we see this phrase, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So it's pretty clear, right? Before God created anything, he chose us in him to receive eternal life. So the question comes... Who, 
is this us that it talks about in this set of verses. And a lot of different people would disagree. So I encourage you to read it as well. So let's read it one more time and think about who you feel like this passage is talking about when it says us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. So, depending on who you are, when you read this set of verses, is Paul talking about a is he talking about a list of people, the saved ones, who, you know, maybe the people that he's talking to um, are the ones on this list that God has predestined to be saved? Maybe the people that he's talking about are not even in Christ yet, and, but they eventually will find their way to Christ. Or is he talking about us as a group of individuals that are part of the body of Christ? And I would argue that, you know, based on everything I read um, and what the Bible teaches us, I would say that he's talking about a group, the group of uh, Christians, the body of Christ, so that we are holy and blameless um, before him as the body of Christ when we're in that body. So key point number one is throughout Scripture, I think we can all agree that God stated that he will save a certain group. Okay, key point number two, we receive salvation by no merit of our own, but by the grace of God. Okay, so we've been watching a lot of Christmas movies lately. I told you we watched Frozen 2. This, actually, when I was reflecting on that, I was like, we have watched a lot of movies in the last few days. Um, you know, The Grinch or this new movie on Netflix, Klaus. Have you all seen that movie? It's like a cartoon. It's, it's, it was good. We watched it yesterday. Uh, Y'all seen it? Okay, it's good. Okay, someone agrees with me. Um, but you know, when you watch some of these movies and you think about the idea of Christmas, you're reminded of just how much of like, uh, you know, like Christmas, Santa Claus is how much of a transactional relationship it is with the holidays. Think about when you're a kid. You, you're, you're taught and all the songs say, you know, you, if you're good, you receive more presents. If you're bad, you receive what? Lump of coal, right? Um, so there's this transactional relationship, but that's not the way it is with salvation, right? From all that we read, salvation is something that we don't earn, okay? Paul writes in 2 Timothy 1, verses 8 through 9, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So this idea of salvation is not something that we can earn, okay? It's, and that fact is scary. You know, when you first think about it, if, if salvation is not something that we can earn, then uh, that's kind of scary. So much of our modern day motivation in the workplace or, you know, in our hobbies is geared toward productivity and achievement. So, for example, if you're at work, you're not likely to receive a raise 
unless you do something exceptional or you've reached a, a career milestone or you've been extremely productive, you're not going to get a, work, a, a raise at work unless you do something like that. You're going to earn that, right? Or well, the same thing with like running a marathon, okay? You know, 26.2 miles or whatever it is. If you don't run the race, you're not gonna get the medal at the end. You don't just show up and get a medal. Um, so this is something that, this is something that is earned. But this is starkly different from the way that salvation is granted to us, right? God saved us and called us to himself, not because of our goodness. There's nothing about us that is inherently good enough to earn us salvation. But he gives us salvation because of his own purpose and unmerited grace, right? That's the idea of grace. And because of this fact that God saved us, the idea of election should actually not be scary to us. This should be something that's comforting to us, right? Because we can know that if we are part of this body, if we're connected to this tree of life, this, this body of Christ, then we can know that we are part of the elect that God has chosen to be saved. Okay? So, key point number two, we receive salvation by no merit of our own, but by the grace of God. Key point number three, our response to being God's elect or chosen should be to glorify Him. That should be our response to being part of God's chosen. In Ephesians 1 verse 12, it says, "...so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory." We're praising Him for being a part of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 13, "...and we also thank God constantly for this." thanking Him constantly, that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but what it really is, the Word of God, which is at work in you believers. So when we realize that we are part of God's elect, part of God's chosen people, we should not respond by doing what maybe the Pharisees did and, you know, uh, being feeling like we are chosen, the chosen ones by God, we should look down on others uh, that, you know, I'm so, so proud of myself for being good and being uh, in the good graces of God. You know, we shouldn't think that way. Our response should instead be gratitude from 1 Thessalonians and should be praise um, in Ephesians. And I would also add humility as well, because when we realize that we have received such a powerful gift that we're not deserving of, we should be uh, driven to humility as well. So our response to being God's elect or chosen should be to glorify Him. Okay, key point number four about biblical election is that evangelism is important and should not be overlooked. So one trap to avoid in thinking about God's chosen or God's elect is uh, that we should not fall into is that there is no point in evangelism. Because as I mentioned earlier, if God has already chosen or predestined this list of people, you know, Peter Snell, whoever, is on this list as being the saved, then what's the point of sending missionaries? Uh, what's the point of evangelizing? Because whether I do anything or not, these people are still going to find their way to God because He's chosen these, these certain individuals. Um, now, 
after reading some literature about this, I think the Calvinist point of view does still endorse evangelism, and they still do, um, they still do, you know, feel that evangelism is worthwhile. And I'm I'm using a broad brushstroke here, so you know, forgive me if I'm mischaracterizing, you know, uh, a Calvinist point of view. But from everything I've read, you know, the Calvinists might argue that evangelism is still important. However, um, you're more of just like a cog in the wheel of getting people uh, to turn toward God. Uh, even they were, they're going to end there uh, anyway. And I'll give you an example of this. So let's use the example of maybe a missionary uh, going to China, okay, to, to reach someone who has never heard the gospel. The Calvinists might argue that it's still important to send a missionary to China to preach the gospel to you know this person because um, you know God they, they might be part of this story that God has uh, you know already they might already be part of this story of getting this person to Christ so um, let me explain that a little better is this person's going to come to Christ whether that missionary goes there or not but it's important for that missionary to go because they might be the turning point that gets that person to Christ, okay? Whereas the Armenian view of evangelism, this same missionary, there's more of a sense of urgency, and um, to me there seems like there's more of a sense of need for why that missionary needs to go to this foreign field to you know, preach the gospel to this person in China because if this person does not hear the gospel or you know, come to Christ, then they may not you know, make the decision to choose Christ and you know, they may uh, not end up being saved. Do you see the kind of the difference there? One, this person is already going to come to Christ whether the missionary goes there or not, but the missionary is good to go there because he might be the turning point that helps that person come to Christ. In the other situation, the missionary needs to go spread the gospel to this person because that person needs to be given the choice. They need to be given the, the exposure to the gospel so that they can make the choice. Um, so both of these views kind of come to the same place in that there is a need for evangelism. And it kind of sounds like you know, a difference in semantics when you, when you break it down really you know, to the basic level. But in my opinion, you know, the, the Armenian view has more uh, of a sense of urgency and the motivation behind it is a little different, okay? Um, so evangelism is important and should not be overlooked when we're talking about the biblical view of election. Key point number five is accepting the biblical idea of election does not eliminate our free will. So some people would have you think that, you know, if God has, you know, if you take the Calvinist view of election and God has chosen this select group or these select individuals from the list to be saved, then what else is God controlling about us? Is he controlling other decisions in our life? Do we truly have free will? But I think if you read several passages in the Bible, you'll see that there are multiple examples of, of Christians being given a choice to accept Christ or deny him. In Revelation 22:17, it says, the spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who desires to take the water of life, 
desires take the water of life without price. So we can see that there's a choice that someone has to physically come in order to um, you know, receive this reward. John 3.18 says, Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in Him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So there's clearly a choice in these two passages, right? Um, you know, this is not something that, that is given passively. You have to believe or you do not believe. And believing will result in being not condemned. And if you do not believe, it will result in being condemned, according to this passage. So, you know, all that being said, I think it's also important to point out that God's decision to save His elect was not based on uh, our goodness. And that goes back to the idea that we were talking about earlier is that we cannot earn our salvation. Uh, God uh, chooses this group, the body of Christ, because, not because of anything we have done, or nothing we can do can buy the favor of God. He gives us salvation simply because He loves us, He wants us to have it, and He decided to give it to us. So, um, you know, it's kind of finding, it's kind of like a balance between those, those two ideas. So key point number six is um, God wants everybody to be saved. And this is maybe, you know, this might be the heart of the, the lesson about biblical election. And one of the most difficult questions to address in the doctrine of election is how can an all-loving God choose some people to save and other people let perish? This is a difficult question. You may have had conversations like this with your coworkers or your friends, and it's not something that I can, uh, you know, I may not do complete justice to this morning in fully answering that question, but from everything I've read and everything I've studied about this, um, I think we can all agree that God wants everybody to be saved. He has a basic desire for everyone to eventually come to the knowledge of the truth. In 1 Timothy 2 verse 4, it says, This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Okay, God wants us all to come to the knowledge of the truth and for everyone to be saved. And in 2 Peter verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So He wants everyone to come to repentance. He wants no one to perish from what we read in this verse. And there are a number of verses where it talks about God or Jesus actually mourning the fact, weeping, uh, you know, lamenting the fact that certain individuals or certain groups are not going to all come back to Him. So He realizes this fact, and it breaks His heart from what we read in Scripture. The fact is that when we sin, we deserve one thing, eternal separation from God, right? So, you know, if someone might bring up the question, you know, why does an all-loving God let some people perish? Why will He let some people go to hell or suffer for eternity? Well, 
let's start with the basic premise that we are all um, undeserving of salvation. If you start with the basic premise of the wages of sin being death, remember in Romans, we, sh we are all dead. We are all should be dead based on our sin. We deserve hell. And if you start from that premise, then you think about how amazing it is that God's grace is one of the most precious give, gifts He gives us because, number one, He delays His judgment to give us more time to reconcile our lives or come around to a repentance. So that's a huge gift that He gives us. You think about, you know, if you receive the punishment for the crimes that you committed right after you did that, right after you committed the crime, you would have no time to come around to repentance to be reconciled with, with Christ. But the fact of the matter is, here today in our lives right now, we have committed crimes. We have, we have sinned against God, but there's still time. There's still time to come around to Him and reconcile our lives to Him, which is a huge gift. That's one of God's amazing graces. You know, and eventually that time will run out, when we die, obviously, we cannot you know, change our trajectory after that. But um, you know, there's verses in the Bible that talk about God um, casting angels out of heaven because they sinned against Him. You know, they don't, the angels don't receive the same grace that we're given. And um, you know, that, was, that was kind of a, an amazing thing to me, uh, these heavenly beings being thrown out of heaven and not receiving God's grace. But we, mo lowly mortals, the you know, fickle people that can make our own decisions, God gives this um, this great gift of grace to the the gift of time. And um, there are other graces that the book talks about that He gives to us. In that, there's intellectual intellectual uh, intellectual excuse me um, gifts that He gives to us. And one of the gifts that He gives us is uh, He gives us grace to all people. So. All people, this idea of even Christians are not the only ones that are doing good in the world. So there might be people outside of the body of Christ that are doing good things, and that's all part of God's grace. There are people that are rich, you know, successful, monetarily, uh, you know, very high up in, in society as, as far as power goes or you know, financial wealth, intellectual wealth, that may not be part of uh, the body of Christ, but that's part of God's grace is He gives people these gifts even if they are not part of Him. Um, and so I think that's another, another thing to keep in mind, and that's another demonstration of God wants everyone to be saved. He wants what's best for everyone. He wants us all to come around to being back in His body. So, you know, we actually the most fair thing that God could do is to let us all go to hell. But instead, He gives us this amazing gift to come back to Him, this path of redemption through, um, you know, through forgiveness, through Christ. And that's how we're able to be reconciled back to Him. So, uh, that's key point number six. God wants everyone to be saved. Does anyone have any questions or comments about that? I've been talking a lot. Disagreements? It's a tough, it's a tough subject, 
and um, you know it's it's a hard conversation that we that we should have with people when they bring it up to us and when we read about this idea of election but if I could give you a few just take-home points and we'll start wrapping things up the conclusions from this lesson I think are number one this doctrine of election should demonstrate to us at the end of the day that God loved us he loved us so much that um, he chose a group of people from the beginning of time to be part of him and have salvation not based on anything that we do or how you know a, 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 a list of items that we check off of a list but he gives us the salvation because he decided to out of the goodness of his heart he has offered this this uh, this gift and the only thing we have to do is accept it accept this gift our response to his love should be to praise him for eternity okay and our response to others should be to show humility since individually we have done nothing to deserve God's grace it's all a gift from him so if I could leave you with a few you know, short points to take home from today um, if you didn't get lost in the verbiage and the the very uh, you know the differences in the semantics is God loves us we should be unified together you know in in Christ we should be thankful for this gift that he's given to us our response to receiving this gift should be to praise him to you know our response to him should be to praise him and our response to others should be humility should be gratitude and uh, if we show that to other people then I think it will be appealing and I think people will be drawn to that so that we can also draw them into the body of Christ and uh, be saved with them one day as well so with that I'll wrap it up and turn it over to I guess you to say something. great thank you